0: Good afternoon, and welcome to The Weekly. Every Tuesday at noon, our podcast hopes to inform you on the information of the world. I'm your host, Stuart Christensen. We've got a really special episode for you today. First off, a briefing on current events, followed by an interview with Dr. Stephen Thomas, who is the chief of the Infectious Disease Division at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse, New York. With that said, let's dive right in. Some of the biggest news this week came from Lebanon's capital, Beirut, where a very large blast damaged the city's port and ruined most of the city. The cause of the blast is believed to be flammable materials catching fire. The cause also seems to be accidental. As of now, the death toll is around 150, with thousands more injured. The government in Beirut has since resigned. The United States passes five million cases of the coronavirus and is still climbing, Cases are expected to spike once again as schools begin to reopen. A plane crash in India earlier in the week involving a Boeing 737 caused by pilot error leaves dozens dead after skidding off the runway. Apple says goodbye to Intel processors after releasing a final Intel Mac a few days ago. In the future, the company will rely on their own processors. And now for our interview with Dr. Thomas. All right. Well, um, thank you for joining us, Dr. Thomas. Um, it's a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Um, so let's start with a brief description of what your job is to explain to some of our listeners.
1: Sure. So I am an adult infectious disease um, physician. Uh, there are pediatric infectious disease divisions um, Uh, pediatric infectious disease physicians as well. So I I just focus on adult patients. And I have two roles. I'm at the State University of New York Upstate Medical University, which is in Syracuse. And uh, in one role, I'm the the chief of the division of infectious diseases, and that's a clinical role. So um, we have a bunch of physicians and other healthcare providers who take care of people with infectious diseases, problems in the hospital and in the outpatient setting. And so I'm the chief of that division. And then the other hat I wear is as a researcher. Uh, and in that role, I direct, um, the uh, Institute for global health and
0: translational sciences. Okay. So what, what have you been doing, um, in those roles for the past couple of months? So, uh starting in around uh
1: December, uh the end of December, um you know, my colleagues and I were s- tracking this respiratory virus that was uh, in Asia that they had started to report uh, an outbreak and we were kind of looking at that and trying to see which direction it was going to go. Was it going to be something that was uh contained very quickly like some of the avian flu um outbreaks have been contained. Or was it something that was going to get uh uh get a little bit more out of control, which obviously it did so around January um we started to look at a couple of things so one, uh, we looked at what do we need to do to prepare uh the hospital uh and prepare the community that we're in in central New York um, uh to be able to identify people who may be infected to contain those infections, uh, to diagnose those infections, and then to treat those infections. Uh, that was one thing that we were that we were doing. Um, the other was trying to figure out a way to support the logistics of those activities, right? So um, getting all the necessary equipment that we would need, making sure that we had the right infrastructure, um, determining whether or not we had to, you know, were we going to take care of everybody in the hospital, or we were going to Kind of spread out into the community, um, things like that and then on the research side of things we were looking at are there any potential vaccines or experimental uh, therapeutics? Um, uh, are there any new diagnostic tests that are coming online that we could uh, because we're, we're researchers and we're used to helping companies and governments develop those types of things uh, Was there a way that we could become that we could become involved uh, in, um, you know, in de- in developing the- those countermeasures. So, in, in an overarching uh, way, that that's kind of what we were,
0: what we were doing. Okay, that's that. That sounds that sounds like you were um, quite involved in the beginning, um, kind of picking this up and starting to track it early in January. Yeah, I mean, you can, uh, and some <laughs> people say, "Oh, well, you just."
1: You're just saying that, um, nobody was, uh, thinking about this in January, but I can actually show you, uh, I can show you the invoices that from our, um, logistics people that we were buying pallets of N95 masks back in January in preparation. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I was in the, the, the army, so I was in the federal government for around 20 years and the last two years of my time in the army, um, I lived through the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and then the MERS-CoV outbreak so that's another coronavirus um and then Zika and and I knew especially from the Ebola experience uh where you know you once the numbers really started to climb and once they started having um you know some people showing up in the United States with Ebola either because they traveled here or because we brought them here for care you know you could not get you know you couldn't get a PAPR, you couldn't get a tyvek suit you couldn't get a lot of these pieces of equipment that are required to protect yourself so i wanted to make sure
0: that <laughs> we at least tried uh, the best we could to get ahead of the curve sure and done um, early on um did anybody in the medical community were they were they like were they foreseeing a virus of this magnitude to come around at some point in um, the 2020s or the 2030s? Because um, I know there there was the great, great flu epidemic in 1918 and 1919. Um, and there haven't been like, absolutely ginormous outbreaks recently to the scale of what we've had in COVID. So could you speak to that? Sure. I mean, I think that
1: uh, we were always, so the community that I'm, you know, that I'm in, so this community of Infectious diseases people and global health people and public health folks and uh, epidemiologists and, and people who uh, are kind of constantly doing surveillance to understand what kind of outbreaks are occurring around around the planet, uh, World Health Organization, uh, you know, and others. Um, you know, we always we always thought that the that there was the potential. For a huge pandemic, and we had talked about it a lot. And you know, I I wrote a paper a couple of years ago of kind of an op-ed piece um, about uh, preempting the next pandemic, and talking about you know that I that I that I and many others are concerned that the planets were going to align and we were going to have sort of a worst-case scenario, which was a new pathogen um, that was, uh, had a high mortality rate and that was easily transmissible primarily by a respiratory route that would have an incubation period where of a couple of days where a person could be infectious to other people, but not symptomatic. And so they wouldn't know, and they would be walking around and giving the, you know, transmitting the infection to lots of people. So that was, you know, that was the worst case scenario that we were, uh, Depicting, And I think, um, you know, I think we got pretty close to that and, and, you know, there were, there's a lot of organizations, um, fewer now under this administration than previous, but there were, uh, there are a lot of organizations within our government, um, whose job it was to try to, um, identify, you know, uh, identify potential occurrences like this and, um, help the country, uh, prepare for them and then be available for a quick response when it does happen. So it's, you know, did we expect that it was going to be this magnitude? Um, you know, we had an, in, we had an idea that it could be, uh, but I think people are still surprised by, um, the expanse and the speed and, um, you know, the impact that it has had, uh, you know, in so many nations globally.
0: Okay. I, I, this, this might be getting a little, a little off topic, but I know that there was like a, some sort of practice for the, for a, um, for a um, respiratory virus called crimson contagion, like some sort of test that the government did with a, some sort of virus. Um, I don't know if this is um, legit, but um, I just remember that the trump administration wasn't completely happy with it
1: yeah i mean so these tabletop exercises uh they i mean we've had lots of tabletop exercises i mean lots of them some you know some big uh so at the scale of what you're referring to some small um there have been endless papers in the uh you know scientific literature and um you know op-ed pieces and everything else um lots of books have been written about it i mean it's not uh, i mean really nobody nobody should be surprised that we're in the situation uh that we're in meaning nobody should be surprised that a new virus emerged and that um you know it jumped from animals to humans, and that humans were largely not immune, and that there was this potential i mean nobody be should be surprised should be surprised by that i mean we had a we had a i mean two years ago so October of eighteen I helped to coordinate and to moderate a um a retreat where we brought in about 40 to 50 uh, scientists from the government, non-governmental organizations, academia, the federal government, um, the Department of Defense, um, uh, commercial space. And we all got together and what we were talking about was uh, disease X, right? We were talking about what is the next pandemic going to be? What's it going to look like? And we published you know, we published these proceedings in the medical literature and a lot of what we talked about and a lot of what we proposed, um, or predicted could happen, uh, has happened. And a lot of the areas that we saw where there could be improvement in terms of preparation and response, um, you know, those, those blind spots, uh, turned out, to. Uh, to be true blind spots, and so, yeah. So this is not. I mean, I know people are surprised, and again, I'm. You know, we're surprised by the scope and the speed, but the the effect, the fact that this event occurred in the first place,
0: nobody should be surprised by that. Okay, and at least for countries that have like handled it better or not, um, which which countries have been able to put in measures for social distancing and masks um, probably weren't as blindsided by the virus as um, we might have been. Well, certainly countries
1: in Asia, so some of the, you know, China and South Korea, Singapore, and some of these other places, um, you know, they had to live through SARS. So the, you know, SARS-CoV-1, so the first Severe coronavirus epidemic back in the early 2000s. And so they had a lot of infrastructure in place. They had a mindset. They had, you know, they were still remembering what uh, the disruption. Um, They've had avian influenza scares and outbreaks. And, uh, you know, and they have just inherent within their culture and the type of government they have. And um the way they can control uh, certain things and um yeah they were they were possibly in a, they were um in in a better position to respond than uh you know than, than we were and a lot of it is cultural and kind of appreciating um i think there's there's a lot of focus on the group versus the individual which I think is a little bit different here. Um, You know, the whole mask thing. I mean, I lived in Asia for six years and uh, I mean, wearing masks, I mean, people are always wearing masks. That's for one reason or another. That's not, it's not like this huge jump for them, for everyone to be wearing, everyone to be wearing a mask. Um, So the fact that wearing a mask during a pandemic that is, you know, Uh, killing half a million or more people, uh, the fact that that has become a politicized uh, activity it just is kind of a little bit mind-boggling to me.
0: Yeah. And then speaking of, like, the the international component, um, do you think different countries have been exposed to different um, mutations and strains of this coronavirus?
1: So if you've we'll talk a little bit about the virus to answer the question. So if you, I mean, most people have seen pictures of the virus, right? So the virus looks like a sphere, like a ball. um, And that ball is covered in all these knobs and those knobs are um, called the spike protein. And it's those knobs, which um, we believe allow the virus uh, to come in contact with a human cell. The knob is what allows those two things to, to come in contact, to merge, and for the virus to then get inside of that cell, replicate, produce new viruses, which then go out of the cell and then infect other cells. Um, So that knob is pretty important and mutation, and it's the basis for a lot, uh, you know, um, immune-based therapies that are being proposed. And of course, it's the basis for all these vaccine candidates that are In development, so mutations within the knob or the spike protein there that would be problematic. And so, what they have seen is that there is one dominant mutation that has occurred um, in that in that spike protein. Uh, It occurred probably um, maybe in April ish timeframe, and and that mutation has basically completely replaced uh, uh, the viruses that were being circulated early early in the pandemic um, and what they have found is that with that mutation the virus seems to be more um, it seems to grow uh, gr- it seems to grow better replicate better and that that of course is concerning in terms of well does that mean then that um, because people will have more virus, are they going to be more transmissible to other people? Because people have more virus, does not mean that they're going to get sicker, right? Because the virus is driving people to get to get sick. Uh, we haven't really seen that yet, per se, but that's still very much an open uh, an open question. But that's the primary mutation that has been uh, that has been seen and has been has been studied.
0: Interesting. So when when people recover from this coronavirus, um, I know there's a lot of controversy um, whether um, immunity lasts for a couple months or a couple years. I've heard stories of people who have tested positive twice for the virus. Um, what is what is the is there a general consensus on what the medical community thinks about immunity um, after recovery? Well, I think the general consensus is that,
1: um, we don't know the answer to, you know, we don't know if once you're infected a, that you're immune or b that you're immune for life, or is it some period, you know, shorter period of, of time. Uh, so I think that's one consensus. Um, um, I think the other consensus is that, uh, we very much need to have an open mind to the idea that people could be infected more than once. Um, I mean, this is something that even the CDC has picked up on and kind of there's a sentence hidden in a policy (laughs) or in a guideline uh, that acknowledges this. I know anecdotally, um, you know, these are, you know, anecdotally, we're seeing patients who um, you know one scenario is somebody gets infected, they have an upper respiratory infection it 's mild they get treated at home, they test positive um, and then they recover and then six, eight, twelve weeks later, they have another they have an exposure to somebody who 's known to be infected, mm-hmm. and then they get sick again and they get really sick this time and they test positive again and so in that case the question is well you know did that is this really a reinfection is this a reactivation of the first infection i mean there's all these kind of questions so i think the second consensus is that people really need to have an open mind about the possibility that people are getting infected more than once which is you know i mean that's that's a very scary prospect because we Typically, when we're making vaccines, for example, um, we are looking at, we we try to look at what happens in nature and try to mimic what happens in nature, but to do it with, you know, with technology. And so the, the hypothesis was that if you get infected and you live, you have generated immune response that will protect you against future infection. And it's that immune response, primarily antibody that we want to try and mimic um, using a vaccine. So the idea that people can get um, infected twice, that's problematic.
0: That was the first part of our conversation with Dr. Thomas. The next part will happen next week. Thank you for taking the time to listen to The Weekly this afternoon. We greatly appreciate it. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and follow our Instagram channel at Connected Radio 20 for updates on interviewees and upcoming episodes. Our sister podcast, Unknowns, will be releasing its next episode on Thursday morning. I'm Stuart Christensen. See you back here next Tuesday for The Weekly, number 17.